Thank you, Emily. Well, let's start with a prayer. Father God, speak to us now so that we leave here today with something more to believe about you and something to do for you. Amen. Well, there it was at last. He'd searched for so long and he'd finally found it there, buried among all the golden treasure. It called out to him, and so over he went and picked it up. There he is, Aladdin. And of course, knowing what sort of lamp it was, Aladdin rubbed the lamp, and sure enough, out popped the genie. Your greatest need is my command, the genie said. Sorry, aren't you supposed to grant my greatest wish? Aladdin replied. Silence hung in the air. Then came the reply. Well, I know what you might have thought, but I'm not that kind of genie. At this, Aladdin fell flat, muttering then only the words, Well, who are you then? It's a good question, isn't it? Who are you? Sometimes we think we know who someone is or something is, only to find it's quite different. There's something of that in our passage today. It's a good question to ask, isn't it? Who indeed is Jesus? Jesus Christ, this person who's split history, B.C. and A.D. This person still talked about and worshipped 2,000 odd years later, as we're doing today. Maybe you've asked yourself that question. This Christ of Christmas, this worldwide festival that's celebrated annually. I spoke with a man the other day who said, He'd accepted that all serious historians acknowledge Jesus' existence. But given that, the question then was, who then is he? Well, Mark's going to be our guide in that journey of discovery that will lead us up to Easter. So turning to our passage this morning in Mark 2, please keep your Bibles open as we go through. It's on page 1003. Great to follow along, just to stay on track so you don't get too confused. Maybe even nod off. In fact, in Acts 20, while Paul was preaching, a young lad, in fact, did exactly that. He fell asleep during a sermon and he fell out of the window and died, very sadly. So I think that application is there for us. (laughs) So uh, let's follow along. So we're in the second week of this new series, uh, Question Mark. Very clever title, isn't it? Do uh, congratulate Edward if you see him. He's very pleased. Um, (laughs) Now, last week we heard from Mark 1, and we read there, didn't we, this sort of encounter that Jesus had with this evil spirit. But we get a sweep in that chapter as well of kind of what's going on at the start. We read at the beginning, Mark announces his purpose right at the beginning. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel about a person, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Then we get a bit more insight into what this is. The content comes through in verse 15 of chapter 1. The kingdom of God has come near. It's about repenting and believing. Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. And we see his priority through Mark is driven by that. He says in verse 38 of chapter 1, let us go somewhere else to nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So today as we're in Mark 2, we'll learn more about the person of who Jesus really is, and what that means for our lives. And the question today that Mark will both ask and answer is, who can forgive sins? It's there in verse 7. 
Well, let's have a little quick think about what's going on in our passage then. Turning to verse 1, what do we see? Jesus is back in Capernaum. Word about him has begun to spread. People are interested. They're captivated by this person. They want to see what he's going to do next. They know he's been healing people and speaking with this great authority. So they flocked in great numbers to hear him. And our setting here is probably someone's house in Capernaum. This person's likely hosting Jesus as he speaks to this listening crowd. But then as he's doing so and telling people this good news of the gospel, he feels things falling on his head, likely bits of dried mud, overlaid branches falling down. And to his amazement, he looks up and there, coming through the roof, a man is being lowered down to Jesus. What an incredible scene. Imagine if it happened here today in Chesham at St. Mary's Church, even during our service. Just what would our reaction be? Well, we're British, so we'd just look straight ahead. (laughs) Keep calm and carry on. But it is incredible, isn't it? Just think about the impact that Jesus has had on people in the area. It's so great that this group of men have carried their friend all the way to see Jesus. And so, what do we see? Well, those close to the man, they turn up to hear and see Jesus because they believe that he has power. But no doubt they were slow getting there. It would have been hard work carrying their friend. It would have slowed their journey. And so, of course, when they get there, there's no room. No room, so they resort to these desperate measures of literally digging through the roof. Full marks for effort. But it is this situation of paralysis that's affected this man and their friend, his friends longing for him to be healed have gone to these lengths. Maybe you remember the Olympic gold medalist, Pete Reed, one of the great rowers of, uh, I think, the Athens Olympics. He was a mountain of a man. Well, after ending his rowing career, he returned to serve in the Royal Marines. But then he had a spinal stroke, which very sadly paralyzed him from the waist down. An awful thing to happen, especially to a man who'd had such a great career as an Olympic rower, I think finishing up in 2012. Physical paralysis is an awful suffering to endure. So there's real emotion going on in this passage. The The friends of this man, this man himself, there's been the experience of these years of shared suffering, the hardship endured, the care given. But now there's hope. They've heard of Jesus' power to heal. So here they are. And as this paralyzed man, lowered through the roof, touches down at Jesus' feet, he sees their faith. And look what he says. He says, my friend, today... I heal you from your paralysis so you may live a normal life among your friends and family. Except he doesn't say that, does he? He says something quite different. Look at verse 5. He says, Son, your sins are forgiven. So first point, if you're making notes, there's a surprising response. A surprising response. Now, culture bombards us with so many needs doesn't say it through advertising, it's very clever. We can be so easily sucked in that we begin to believe those things that are sold to us online or in newspapers, on billboards. 
We begin to think we need this or we need that. A better car, a bigger house, a better body, a bigger income, whatever it might be. And we get formed by culture as we listen to its voice. A bit like Aladdin at the beginning, no doubt we have a kind of wish list within that we hope a genie will grant us. Perhaps that's even reflected in our prayer life. We sort of maybe think of Jesus as a bit like that genie. We rub on the lamp of prayer and he gives us the things we really want. But what if it is a need that truly is legitimate? It's not just a wish, a desire, but a genuine need. Like a need to be cured from a terrible illness like cancer. And yet in the face of that, we're told that there's something more important. That that still wasn't our greatest need. Maybe then there'd be an outrage. Not just confusion, but anger. But here with this story of the paralyzed man, we see something similar going on. Because as Jesus considers his faith and sees his paralysis, what does he do first? He forgives him his sin. You can imagine the uh, confusion, the frustration, the bewilderment. No, no, Jesus, no, 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 it's, it's, it's not that. He's, you're confused. It's, it's not his soul. It's, um, it's his legs, Jesus. Heal his legs. Pins, not sins. Jesus, you've got the wrong diagnosis. Surely Jesus is just a bit dehydrated from the heat and the crowd. He's, he's muttering away, pious, spiritual, nothings about forgiveness and missing the big issue here. But he's not. Paralysis is, of course, a great problem for this man, a great problem for anyone. But there is a greater problem still. His sin. Maybe you've seen uh, the film with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Kate Winslet, the Titanic. Well, when that ship sunk, despite having five classes of passengers on it, right from the very first class down to steerage, the lists accounting for passengers only had two categories. Those known to be lost and those known to be saved. You see, for all that life brings, whether wealth or poverty, success or failure, we'll all meet the same ends. We'll all one day face God and need to give an account for our lives. And Jesus knows that. Now today, maybe we haven't got any great illness, let alone paralysis, but we all share one great condition, the problem of sin. In God's medical notes of each of our lives, it's right up the top in bold. You've got sin. You've got sin. And so much like a doctor would sooner treat a heart attack than a broken arm, so here Jesus is treating the greater problem of the man's sin. You see, what we think we need and what God says we need are often not the same. Jesus makes this surprising response. He sees the bigger, eternal need, the man's sin, and heals him of that problem first. But look down at verse 6. The teachers of the law, they're not so sure about all this proclaiming of forgiveness. And in a way, their concern is justified, because by forgiving sins, Jesus is equating himself with God. There's that question, verse 7. It's forming the theme of our talk today. Who can forgive sins? And they go on. But God alone. A vital question to consider. 
Just who is this Jesus who forgives sin? So hearing this, Jesus then acts in such a way that demonstrates his very authority to do so. And it tells us more about who he is as we continue on in Mark into the next part of chapter 2. So this is our second point. We've had a surprising response now. It's a surprising authority. Maybe you remember the uh, self-declared prophet David Icke, a purple shell suit wearer of the late 80s and 90s. Well, in 1991, David Icke declared that the Isle of Arran would disappear. But it didn't. It's still there off the coast of Scotland. Despite making that great claim, the fact that it stayed and is still here now undermined it. It made him out to be a fraud. You see, where a big claim is made, it's fair that we need some evidence to back up that claim for it to be proved as true. And something similar is going on in this part of Mark 2. Jesus is in a similar situation. You see, these teachers of the law, they're basically accusing him of blasphemy by granting forgiveness, of presenting himself as a fraud. The situation presents an opportunity. But it also presents a conundrum. You see, to heal the man of his paralysis would be a very obvious and visible demonstration of Jesus' power. No one could deny his power if he healed the man of his paralysis. If Jesus is just to say, your sins are forgiven, although that's a hugely powerful thing to do, something the Pharisees are saying only God can do, the problem with that is, it's not visible. It's not easy to prove having happened. So what Jesus does is he deals with this problem the teachers of the law present him with by healing the man physically. And in doing so, he proves he's also done the greater, deeper, invisible healing of the man spiritually. You see, he's healed him fully, body and soul, but he's prioritized his soul first. So Jesus does two miracles. That question that hung over his authority and power to forgive sin is removed. The claim he's made is backed up by the evidence of him healing the man's body. So what does that mean about this person of Jesus? Look at verse 10. You see there Jesus says he wants to show he has authority to forgive sin because he's challenged about that. He's challenged by the teachers of the law in verse 7. And having healed the man, the question then remains, who then must Jesus be? And he says there in verse 10 that he is the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a figure from the Old Testament, notably from the book of Daniel, if you've ever read it. The Son of Man is described as a figure distinct from God the Father, one that has divine authority and glory and power and is to be worshipped. And there in verse 10, after all that's happened, Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. I'm none other than God in the flesh. And so he has surprising authority. Now, in light of all that, we might think that, therefore, those who Jesus calls to follow him would all do so immediately because they realize who he is. Look at verse 14. We see this chap, Levi, 
He's called by Jesus. And he follows him. So we might think that is how we all would behave. But as we close, we see finally a surprising rejection. It's our last point, a surprising rejection. I am an alcoholic. It's a line that forms the bedrocks of Alcoholics Anonymous. Before any healing and recovery can begin, any member of an Alcoholics Anonymous group must publicly admit that they are an alcoholic. No more hiding away or denying it. There's something about the public nature of the confession of that in the group. It bursts the bubble of denial and allows recovery to begin. Now, we might not consider ourselves alcoholics this morning, but we have our own great problem, each one of us. We have a great problem of sin, and we cannot in ourselves please God. We saw that earlier. Jesus said that, didn't he? Through the way he approached that man who was lowered through the roof. He showed that our greatest problem and need is therefore, our greatest problem is sin, and our greatest need, therefore, is for forgiveness. But like with an Alcoholics Anonymous group, we need to admit that. And that's the verse 17 coming in, how Jesus closes off the passage. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, if Jesus is ever to be the physician of our souls, we need to hold our hands up, like those in an AA group, and say, yes, I've got sin. Help me, Lord. I've got a sin. I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. Now, this character, uh, Levi, a tax collector, likely would have uh, been resented by the people of his day. He worked with the Roman occupiers. He likely skimmed some money off the top when taking tax. People would have disliked Levi. Levi knew he was sinful. There's no denying of that fact when Jesus confronts him. He doesn't resist Jesus' call and fight it. He knows he needs forgiveness. And so when Jesus calls, he eagerly follows him. But hang on, it says in that last verse of our passage today that those who are already righteous don't need Jesus to be their doctor. They're okay, right? They don't need to answer that question of who can forgive sins. But actually what Jesus is doing there in asking that question, in that statement, he's exposing the hearts of those who are criticizing him. He's saying basically, yeah, of course you don't think you need me to be your spiritual doctor when you're so full of self-righteousness. You see, it's the person who falls face down, admitting their sin, just like Levi does. He doesn't fight Jesus, but follows him. It's that person who enters the kingdom of God, not the self-righteous person standing off. You see, the Pharisees saw all of Jesus' wonderful deeds. They saw so much of his miraculous power, but in their stubbornness and hardness of heart, they wouldn't admit their sin. In contrast, Levi, despised by society, lining his own pockets, resented by the people. Yes, a sinful man, a very obviously sinful man. But at least he therefore knew he needed a doctor. 
Maybe that question was running around his head most of his life. Who can forgive sin? Who can forgive me my sin? As trapped as he was in it. Despite all they witnessed, the Pharisees, these gatekeepers, these religious teachers of the law, are not interested. And so with those religious folk, we see a surprising rejection. A surprising rejection. And the challenge, therefore, is that we don't make the same mistake. We don't get trapped in self-righteousness and get blinded from our need to be forgiven. Let's be those who see who Jesus is and respond rightly. Remember that question from verse 7? Who can forgive sins but God alone? We've seen today that Jesus proved his authority to forgive sin. And that can only mean one thing, that he is divine. He is God. Mark is helping us see more and more of who Jesus is. That question from the beginning, who can forgive sins? The answer, Jesus. He is the Son of Man with authority to forgive sin. Your sin and mine. However shallow and subtle and hidden away or however deep and awful our sin is. He's the one who, like Aladdin's genie from the story earlier, doesn't exist to grant our whims and wishes. But he exists to meet our greatest need. He surprises us with a true diagnosis of our greatest problem our sin, and wonderfully has made a way to heal us of that issue. And as with the paralyzed man, and as with Levi, receiving forgiveness of sins, it leads to a new life, one of joy, one of purpose, and of living for God. And as forgiveness is received, it gives us the strength and freedom to forgive those who've sinned against us. That's that dynamic in the Lord's Prayer. So come to Jesus today, perhaps afresh or maybe for the first time, as he diagnoses your greatest need of sin. Come to him for that healing, because only he has the power and authority to do so. Let's close with a prayer. Father God, thank you that Jesus died to meet our deepest need. Help us to see our need for your true healing and receive it in Jesus' name. Amen.